We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs... Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I think it was my imagination that really drove me and, and helped me survive because I would imagine being a girl and then later on being a woman. That was how I let off the the pressure to live this life that I had to live, but at the same time not deny the way I felt. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. If you live in the New York City metro area, you might recognize Bernie Wagenblast's voice. Right now, the primary way that I show up in people's daily lives is on transportation. Mm -hmm. And that would include the New York City subway, the air train at Newark Liberty International Airport. And for anybody who's down in South Jersey or Philadelphia, it would be on Patco. So they would hear me making announcements, um, or my disembodied voice at least, (laughs) making announcements in those places. Oh, that's interesting, that distinction between you and my disembodied voice. Does that feel separate? Well, especially on the New York City subway, it feels a bit separate. It sounds very staccato in terms of how it's presented because it's a computer putting together all these little words and phrases that I recorded and trying to make a sentence. So it it would sound something like, the next, downtown, number one, will arrive in one minute. (laughs) I know that. (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) So that is kind of disembodied when I hear it. In fact, I was a little bit early, and I actually ducked down into a nearby subway station just to hear how it's uh, sounding these days. (laughs) Oh, what did you think? Well, it sounded fine. It was a little bit loud, I thought. Um, (laughs) But you kind of have to be loud in New York to be heard over all the other noise. Bernie is 66. She grew up in the New Jersey suburbs in the 1960s and 70s. Since she started her career in media in her early 20s, her voice has been her calling card. But after coming out as a trans woman at the end of last year, a lot of things have changed, including her voice. I've only been using this voice full-time since January 1st. Um, Before that, I had been working on it, but most of my conversation was what I call my guy voice. And professionally, I still use that voice, but I'm trying to use this voice more and more so that it becomes more natural, I become more comfortable with it, and hopefully I can improve upon it. Mm -hmm. Well, so before January 1st, 2023, 
Um, were you using the voice that I'm hearing now anywhere outside your home? No, no, I was. Um, my voice therapist would hear this voice, but that was about it. Those were the only places where I was really using the voice was at home and, and when I was with my voice therapist. Mm. How long have you seen the voice therapist? Oh, about a year and a half or so. I, I'm not currently seeing the voice therapist. Um, I think I've got some of the basics down. It's much better than it was, but it still has a ways to go. And I set a fairly high bar because I use my voice professionally, so I have a fairly high bar with what I want it to be. But there's something that's still there that I can't quite put my finger on that I need to change to get it to be where I want it to be and to be what I would consider passable. That's not important to all trans women, but because my voice has played such an important part in my life, that is something that is important to me personally. Yeah. And have you needed to use, as you call it, your guy voice um, in 2023? Oh, yeah. Yes, I did. Uh, I had some, there were some updated announcements over at Newark Airport. They opened up a new terminal. So they had a bunch of new recordings that had to be done for that. And I host uh, the transportation podcast. I do two every month. So since January, I've probably done four of those or so where I've used this for my old voice. Mm -hmm. And when you had to go in, when you had to go in uh, to record the new Newark announcements because of the new terminal, did you, how did it feel to be in the studio and to feel yourself switching back when you had intentionally switched away from it at the start of this year? Well, fortunately, I was able to do it from home, so I didn't have to do it in front of anyone. Hmm. But it feels a little strange, and one of the things that I've noticed is that it's a little bit easier, or a lot easier actually now, to switch between the two voices. In your life, when, when do you, when's the first flash of when you can remember feeling like a girl? Four years old. Uh -huh. I remember clearly being at my grandmother's house, sitting in front of her vanity, putting on some of her necklaces, and I think she had powder at her vanity and putting that on my face. Mm -hmm. And how did it feel when you were sitting at that vanity? Well, it felt good. It felt natural. It felt like, why can't I do this? Um, I'm not sure when I first came across the the impression that this wasn't okay. But I think fairly soon I realized that this was not okay. Mm -hmm. How did you know what the risk was? What, what, what was the fear of what would happen? Oh, I think th different, different things that, have, that happened. Um, one was I was probably six or seven years old, and my best friend who lived across the street, she was a girl, and... Her dad had built a little fort in the backyard. And one day I suggested to her that we switch clothes. I don't even remember what she was wearing, but we switched clothes. And her older brother, who probably was only 10 or so, saw us and shared it with his parents, who in turn shared it with my parents, who made it clear to me they weren't yelling at me or anything like that. I wasn't punished, but told me that that was not acceptable. Another one was junior high. And junior high <laughs> was tough for everybody. But for whatever reason, I thought, well, maybe I can start to show this a little more outwardly. And I changed how I carried my books. Boys would typically carry their books 
in their, the crook of their arm by their side, and girls would carry it up closer to their chest. And I did that a couple of times. And boys would come along, knock the books out of my, my arm, sprawling all across the, the hallway. They would call me names. So that very quickly ended, and I realized again that this was just something that was not acceptable and that I could not let anybody else know about. So that's around the time, was your body beginning to change with puberty? Yes, yes it was, and my voice was getting deeper and, you know, all the things that boys typically go through. Mm -hmm. And was that, what was that like, to notice your body changing? Was it troubling? Not terribly. Um, there was one thing that I, I remember, though, that gave me joy, um, that I think a lot of boys, when they start going through puberty, have breast growth. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm growing breasts. This is great. Uh, and it stopped. <laughs> so that was that was the one thing that, that I remember being upset about. But I think at that point in my life, I had just anticipated that I was going to have to live the rest of my life as a guy. And I would make the best of the hand I was dealt. Do you remember at that phase around junior high, like finding any grown-ups that you thought you could confide in? There was one. There was a, a teacher in a nearby town who had transitioned. And I looked up her address in the phone book, oh. and I actually sent her a letter and told her about myself. And we made arrangements for her to call me one evening at a payphone. Um, oh, that was wow. maybe a half mile away from where I lived. We set a time, and I get, sent her the phone number, and she called me. And I just, for the first time ever, shared with somebody how I felt and talked with someone who I knew could understand what I was feeling. And I have to give her a lot of credit because I was a minor, and she was taking a risk. She was fired from her job because she had transitioned, and... She took a great risk uh, of talking with me, but it was so helpful to me to have someone that I could confide in and someone I, that I could talk to and someone I knew who understood what I was feeling. Yeah. Do you remember how you had heard about this teacher in the other town? It was in the newspaper. And when that phone call happened, had she already been fired? I think it was, at that point, it was still being debated. It, it, she had come out during the summer, and the Board of Education decided, I believe, before the start of the next school year in September, that they were going to let her go. Do you know if she's still living? She is not. Mm -hmm. did, you, did you keep in touch at all? No, unfortunately, and that is a great regret of mine that I never had a chance to tell her how much she meant to me. Um, I never did keep in touch with her after that phone call. Do you want to tell us her name? Um, Paula Grossman was her name. Paula Grossman. No. Oh. Paula Grossman got a letter in the mail from a 13-year-old and called the payphone when you needed to hear from her. That's just beautiful. Yeah, it was. By the time Bernie learned about Paula and her local paper, she'd been reading the news for years. She fell in love with media early. Bernie was in fifth grade when she set her sights on becoming a broadcaster. I had my little transistor radio that I brought with me everywhere. I listened to it all the time, and it was something I fell in love with. 
And you grew up in the era where voices on the radio had a certain tenor, especially from men. Like, it was, like, very male. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Booming voices. Yep. And, and is that, did you want to be that on the, on the radio? Yeah, that was one of the things I did. I, I would take the newspaper and just read it out loud to try to develop that kind of a voice, even before my voice started changing. But as my voice did start to deepen, I welcomed that, that I knew that that sound more authoritative and it sounded uh, uh, better than, than having a, a higher-pitched voice would. Uh-huh. So you wanted to cultivate this, this delivery that was one of authority. Um, did that feel at all in tension with... Um, how you you desired to express yourself gender-wise otherwise? It, again, I think it felt as if, unfortunately, I am going to have to live as a male all my life. So doing the deep voice was the best way to go forward and to do something that I loved doing. And I think it was, in some ways, a distraction. Hmm. You say you had sort of like, you looked ahead, you saw your future, it was living as a man, and that's that's what was going to be, so how to make the best of it. Did you, um, did it feel like you were trying to sort of push away this knowingness or just kind of keep it secret and say, there's nothing I can do for this part of me, um, but I know it's still a part of me? I think the way that I dealt with it was just with my imagination. I would imagine myself. I remember as a kid going through the Sears catalog and just looking at the girls' dresses and just imagining myself in that. I would spend countless hours at my local library, and there used to be a publication called The Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, and it was an index of magazines. And I would look, and again, they were indexed under sex change at the time, and any articles I could find about it, and that I could read about that and learn more about it. I don't think there was one waking hour of my life from six years on that I didn't think about being a girl at least once during that hour. That's how pervasive it was. It was something that was always there. Hmm. I'm just judging from the tone of your voice, though, when you describe every hour, it, it's something you thought about. It doesn't, the way you describe it, it, I don't hear a sort of like heaviness and dread that this was being withheld from you. I hear it more as like, almost like a thought that you would come back to as like, there she is, there she is, she's still there. Um, it, it, and did it am i reading that correctly is that did it not have a sense of like why can't i why can't i let her out i think it was both i think there were times where i did really regret that i couldn't let her out that i couldn't be that person that i always wanted to be to guard myself against being depressed i would live in that fantasy world Bernie stayed in New Jersey for college at Seton Hall University, where she started working at her college radio station. She worked her way up to news director by her junior year, but she did make some time for romance. I only dated two people in my life. One was while I was in college, and that was more at her uh, 
her starting the the relationship. Um, and I I did share with her about myself. And that relationship ended shortly thereafter. And then the next person that I shared it with was the woman who became my wife. And it was clear that I was going to ask her to marry me. But I felt that if I was going to do that, she needed to know about this part. Because I knew by then this was never going to disappear. And anybody that I was going to marry was going to have to live with this to some extent. So we were on a a little picnic date at Liberty State Park in New Jersey. And it was a fall day. And I shared with her. And I remember breaking down in tears because I was sure that she was going to say that that would be the end of our relationship. I was so choked up. It was very hard for me to get those words out of my mouth because I knew the likely outcome of this conversation would be the end of the relationship that we had enjoyed for a couple of months. It felt much longer at that point, but what we had enjoyed for those first couple of months. And this was a woman that I could see myself spending the rest of my life with and anticipating that this would be the end. So it was perhaps the most difficult conversation I had had up to that point. Mm-hmm. What do you remember her, what she said back? She told me that she loved me. She told me that it was okay, that we could deal with this, that this was not the end of our relationship. Um, She hugged me. It was far better than I could have hoped for at the time. Coming up, how a photo app helped Bernie realize she could live as a woman. Up until that time, when I imagined transitioning to being a woman, It was always the expectation that I would not be very pretty, that it would be embarrassing. All these things that were negative that I had convinced myself about. But when I saw that picture, that was was the moment. One theme we've heard over and over on the show over the years is how relieving it can be when you finally find someone to talk to about a secret or something difficult or a way you feel misunderstood. How that can be nothing short of life-saving. Teenage Bernie found Paula. For a lot of us, it's a therapist. And it's always interesting for me to hear, when you first sought out therapy... I remember back in 2014, Jane Fonda told me she was in her 50s when she tried it for the first time. It was early on in her marriage to Ted Turner. I guess I started in therapy when I was, after I'd been married to Ted for about three years. That Was and, that the first uh, time you'd been in therapy? Yes. Wow. And it was, it was um, you know, not Freudian lying on the couch with some guy behind you. Mm-hmm. It was feminist therapy. It was relational therapy. It was a woman sitting and looking me right in the eye and crying with me. And it made me understand everything about me and my life and my family. And it really saved me. And I'm so grateful. 
We're doing a series of live call-ins about mental health next month called Hold On. You'll be able to join in the conversation on public radio stations across the country and hear it here on the podcast feed. And as we prepare for it, we want to hear from those of you who've also found a therapist that felt really right for you. How'd you do it? And when did you know it was a good fit? Your tips may help someone else. Record a voice memo and tell us about that, finding that therapist that really helped you. And send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. And if you want to listen back to my whole conversation with Jane Fonda, there's a link in our show notes. It's an episode I really love. And one more thing, we also want to hear from those of you who are therapists and hear what you're noticing about the moment we're living in and what you're hearing from your clients. Be our reporters. What themes are coming up over and over again? Are you being contacted by a lot of first-time clients? Generally, how's it feel like we're all doing out here? We don't need to hear about specific clients from you, and we can leave your name out if you prefer, but we want to know generally, if you're a therapist, what are you hearing from the people you work with? You can tell us that in a voice memo, too. Record one and send it to our inbox at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman, and I host a podcast called Design Matters from the TED Audio Collective. Every episode, I have conversations with designers, writers, artists, and other luminaries of contemporary thought. People like Roman Mars, Ai Weiwei, Ethan Hawke, and Ashley Ford. We not only talk about their crafts, but how they design the arc of their lives, what they've learned, what obstacles they've overcome and how they've done it, and how they see the world. Join us for an inquiry into the broader world of creative culture. Find and follow Design Matters with Debbie Millman wherever you're listening to this. Hey, I want to tell you about a podcast that I really enjoy called Search Engine. It's hosted by PJ Vogt, and each week he and his team answer these perfect questions. The kinds of questions that you ask at a dinner party and totally derail the conversation. Like, episodes include, when do you know it's time to stop drinking? Does anyone like their job? How do you survive fame with Molly Ringwald? What are we going to do with all these cats? About feral cats and how they affect nature. And wait, 
Is it unsafe to drink the water on airplanes? No, but you should definitely listen to the episode to find out more. I love listening to this show, and I usually find myself smiling the whole way through. And there's also at least one moment each episode where there's a line of writing that makes me hit pause and rewind just to admire the turn of phrase. If you find this world bewildering, but also sometimes enjoy being bewildered by it, check out Search Engine. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. By the time Bernie Wagenblast was 23 years old, professionally, things were going great. She'd landed her dream job reporting for not one, but two of the most popular radio stations in New York City. Not only was I on the air in New York, I was on two New York stations in drive time, which is the time where most people are listening to radio. So it was a dream come true to be in this kind of a situation. Bernie married her wife not long after, and a few years after that, they became parents. When we got married, I think we knew that we didn't want to have children immediately. So it was three years after we married that we had our first baby. Um, But it was... It was clear, I think, that we were at least going to have two kids. It wasn't particularly well-planned, but it worked out very, very nicely. It was three years from our marriage to the first baby, three years after that to our second, and then three years after that to our third. The youngest one was already potty trained by the time the next one came along. Yeah, that's nice. I have two little kids and didn't quite get that work just quite right. Um, but I, I'm curious, when you when you were parenting little kids, you know, so much about seeing them when their personalities are just coming out, like it's it's getting to know them. And, and did you feel, were you, did you try to be particularly attentive to their gender expression as little kids? No, no, I don't recall that being something that I thought of at all, to be honest with you. Uh, all three are girls. So I think a lot of that kind of fell on my wife in terms of picking out clothes and fixing their hair and dealing, you know, as they got a little older, helping them with any girl-related issues that they may have had because I wasn't the one that they would turn to for that. Mm. That's interesting that you didn't, like, participate in the, like, I don't know, the fashion for the first formal or something like that. You, that was all your wife's territory. Yeah, and yeah, and again at the time, while I was struggling with this every day, there was nothing that I was doing about it. So I, you know, I did not dress in women's clothes in secret. I did not um, follow fashion and and know what was going on. I, I I think I threw myself into my job. That was that was my outlet to use my job as a place where I could let off and and show my creativity and things of that sort. So that was really my outlet for dealing with this issue. And that's what we called it. That's what my wife and I called that our shorthand was the issue. So every so often she would ask, how are you dealing with the issue? And I would report, you know, oh, this was, this has been a really tough weekend or this one has been, you know, wasn't too bad this week. And that, that's how we, we dealt with it. But it was just a secret between the two of us. No one else knew. And were you seeing a therapist or anything? 
Not immediately. I first the first therapist I saw was probably about 20 years ago. And I went to her and she was encouraging me to at least partially transition. And I felt afraid. That was scary to me. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And I was terrified at that because I was afraid of somebody discovering me and what that would mean to the rest of my life. So I stopped seeing her because it was just too too scary to, to contemplate that. And it probably wasn't for another, oh, I don't know, 10 years later that I went back and started to see another therapist and try to deal with this uh, from a therapy perspective. When did it begin to feel urgent to confront and incorporate in your life in a different way? It was, I can tell the the exact date, April mm. 21st of 2017. Hmm. And there was this, this new app that had come out called FaceApp. And it was being talked about on TV because they were taking photos of NFL quarterbacks and putting them through this face app. And one of the things that it would do is it could change your gender. And I, as soon as I heard about this, I said, oh, I have to try this and see what, what this is going to look like. And I wasn't expecting much. I expected, you know, that it would just like put long hair on me and maybe some lipstick or something like that. But for the first time... I saw myself as a woman, what I felt was a realistic portrayal of what I might look like. But I also saw this resemblance to my mom. I had been told that I looked more like my mom than my dad, but I could never identify what made me look more like her. And I saw that for the first time. And it was this light bulb going off that, oh my gosh. Do you remember like a well up of emotion? Yeah, it was... It was exciting. It was something that I felt I needed to share. You wanted you wanted to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I put this up on my Facebook page, but did it with the explana- explanation of, oh, you know, here's what, if I had, had a twin sister, here's what she may have looked like. And I wanted to see what people would say. And I remember reading the comments and... So many of the comments were, oh, she's beautiful. Oh, you look good as a woman. And it felt so good to me. You know, some people took it as a joke and laughed. But the compliments just meant so much to me. You know, at the same time, I think it was also something that was very scary to my wife. She was not terribly happy with those comments. And I don't think she wanted to do anything that would be encouraging to have me transition. Yeah. Can I ask you, you, you mentioned um, you mentioned how you'd always worried that you wouldn't be a pretty woman. Mm-hmm. Can we just talk about like, like how you, to, to be seen as being an attractive woman, like, can you talk to me a little bit about that fear and, and what it was like to see yourself as a woman and, and to gauge whether you thought you looked attractive? I never had a goal of being a beautiful woman. I would always describe myself, if I could, as being the girl next door, being cute. That was how I wanted to see myself. I wasn't even envisioning myself being what I would call movie star beautiful. I think what meant the most to me was just to be 
able to be with other women, to be seen by other women as a woman, to be accepted in that way. And when those inevitable moments came where women and men would segregate themselves into separate groups at parties or at events, I always felt I had to go with the guys and I wanted to stay with the girls. And sometimes I would, um, but I, I always felt a bit of an outsider when I did that. And that was very tough for me. And how, how did you talk to your kids about this? When did you have conversations with them? That happened probably about four years ago. All three of my daughters are married. So with each one, we had a separate conversation. My wife and I together met with them and told them about how I've always felt about myself and some of the things that I was doing, but still at the time that there was no plan for me to transition or to change my appearance or even at that point, my legal identity or gender. It was just letting them know something that I had always struggled with and wanting them to be aware of that. I didn't want them to hear this secondhand. If something happened to me, I didn't want them to not have a chance to talk with me about it and to ask me questions and to really get to know their dad on a much deeper level. Yeah. And how did it feel to you to to feel known in that deeper way by your children? Each time I would break down in tears telling them about this. And it wasn't that I was afraid of them rejecting me or anything like that. But I think it was just this emotional release of what I was feeling inside. Yeah. And, you know, with any, with any big disclosure in a family, like there's your experience of disclosing and, and sharing, um, and then it also changes the reality of the family. So a lot of people's realities are, are shifted, and, and um, it can challenge family dynamics. It can challenge relationships and what they can hold. Um, have you gotten any outside help? just helping everybody navigate this together? Well, I think each of us, to some degree or another, with maybe one exception, have seen therapists. Once all of my daughters knew about this, they had each other that they could talk to. And I think that was very important, that they had each other that they could turn to and share this inf information with and share their concerns and, and everything else that went along with it. Bernie and her wife eventually decided to separate, though she didn't want to go into detail about that out of respect for her wife's privacy. After telling her family, Bernie began to explore more ways to privately affirm her gender, though she still wasn't sure she'd ever transition socially. I did what I think is a, a rather slow but deliberate transition, and I would start to change things here and there. One of the first things I did was I went on the lowest dose possible of hormone replacement therapy in the hope that maybe that would be enough, that that would make me feel calm. And I think just the knowledge that I now had estrogen in my bloodstream 
felt so good. And then there were subsequent steps. I, I started getting some clothing that was more androgynous, that wasn't necessarily feminine, but it wasn't masculine either. And, and wearing that and seeing how that felt. Um, I eventually made a, a legal change where I changed my first name to the name that I've always gone by. Everyone's always known me as Bernie, but Bernie can also be short for Bernadette. At that point, I wasn't, still wasn't planning on socially transitioning, but it would make it easier if I ever did that they would have to learn new pronouns, but they wouldn't have to learn a new name. But by the very end of 2022, that changed. Bernie wanted to socially transition. She posted an announcement on Facebook and on LinkedIn that she was starting the new year living publicly as a woman. This would be an opportunity to say it in my own words. That was what was important to me. I wanted this to be said in my own words and not for people to hear about it in quiet conversations with, oh, did you hear about Bernie Wagenblast or something like that? I wanted them to have a chance to read it in my own words and hear what I had to say and why this was important. Hmm. You posted it on December 28th, and it says, beginning January 1st, I plan to begin living as a female full-time. So it was sort of a few days in advance, and you're announcing this publicly. Um, before that post, um, were you going out, were you presenting as female when you were leaving the house, like to go to the store? Not really. Um, there were a few occasions. The first time I ever went out publicly outside of Halloween was in November. The support group that I'm a part of had Pride Awards that evening. And it's a semi-formal affair. And I was planning to attend as I had in years past, but it was feeling increasingly uncomfortable to go to something like this in a jacket and tie. So I reached out to one of my trans friends who was older than me and said to her, is there anything you can suggest that would add a little bit of feminine flair to this jacket and tie? And she said, go to a costume store, get a cheap wig, and I've got a dress for you. And I went down to her house that day, and she gave me the dress. Another friend had a real wig that she gave me. So I didn't have to depend on the cheap costume store <laughs> wig, thank goodness. <laughs> and she made up my face, and I, I bought a pair of heels and went to this event. And it was scary and exhilarating all at the same time. You know, we had to drive there, and it was still daylight. And I'm just thinking, is, no, is anybody looking at me? Is anybody noticing? But then once I got to the event, the support and the love that I received from the other people there felt so good. And that was the moment I knew that I was going to socially transition. Now I saw in real life that it was possible. After the event was over, we went back to my friend's house and I got dressed up again in my boy clothes. And it was like Cinderella at midnight. 
when she went back to her ragged dress. Here I was, I was going back to my ragged clothes. It made clear to me that this was, this was something that I needed to do. That's Bernie Wagonblast. She told us that she doesn't plan on using her new voice for her voiceover work, but she is exploring using it on the two podcasts she hosts, Transportation Radio and Cranford Radio, which is about her hometown of Cranford, New Jersey. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellow-Duke. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Lindsay Foster-Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Baze Owen. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P-I-C-S, and the show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Peyton Migliano in North Hollywood, California, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. You can join Peyton and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Bernie also told me how she decided to keep her name. She was inspired by a colleague from a few years back who also went by Bernie. I would sometimes fill in as a traffic reporter for a woman who went by Bernie. And it was always fun on the air because Bernie filling in for Bernie, but this Bernie has a much deeper voice Uh uh (laughs) than the usual Bernie. That was part of what convinced me that Bernie could work. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that People will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. It's opinion palooza season here at Slate. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, the host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. As this Supreme Court term hurdles towards its close, the justices are handing down decisions that will shape our politics and our lives for years and decades to come. My team and I are putting out analysis of the biggest cases just as quickly as we can bound to our closets and fire up our laptops to speak to you. From presidential immunity to social media content regulation to domestic abusers' gun rights, we will be here unpacking the news for you. Listen to Amicus wherever you get your podcasts.